All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckocrats? What the fuck publicans? Whatever few of you are left listening. I don't know. How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How you holding up? I know, I know. Not great, many of you. I know, myself included. It was rough going. Rough going this weekend. Rough going this year. Rough going the last couple. But I do want to say, I want to say a couple things. First, I'd like to talk about a thing I'm doing that is, uh, well, I, it should be uplifting. It should be spiritually uh, uh, um, comforting on some level. I, uh, I'm doing, I'm hosting a, a great event, I think. It's not a political event, but it's a music event. And I just wanted to draw a little attention to it. It's called Across the Great Divide. And it's a, it's a benefit concert for the American Music Association and the Blues Foundation. It's going to be here in Los Angeles at the Ace Theater on October 19th. I'm hosting it. And performing that night will be John Prine, Bob Weir, Lucinda Williams, Doyle Bramhall II, Shamika Copeland, Larkin Poe, Joe Lewis Walker, Tash Neal, maybe some special guests, and Jimmy Vivino, my old buddy from The Conan Show, the amazing guitar player and band leader, will be, uh, will be the music director and band leader of the event, and you can still get tickets for that. Uh, you can just go to acehotel.com and you know click on the calendar there and get tickets. It's going to be a fun event, and who knows, maybe Jimmy will let me play a number. Uh, that said, today on my show, on this show that you're listening to now, I have sort of a, a, I would like to consider a special guest because I don't get many guys down here from Canada, and uh, Charlie Demers is a comedian, uh, social activist, uh, and writer, uh, who I've worked with many times, and a lot of you may not know him, but he's a, a sweet guy, he's a smart guy, politically engaged guy, and a very funny guy. He's opened for me many times up in Canada, and we've shared meals, and he's just one of the, the lovely people that uh, I've met in my life doing this job. Uh, you might know him, actually, because he is... Uh, He's actually, if you have kids, you've probably heard him as a voice on stuff like My Little Pony and Beat Bugs. Uh, but today, he's uh, actually promoting his book. It's a comedic crime novel called Property Values, and it comes out on October 16th, and you can pre-order it now. It's a great book. It's a, it's a smart book. So look forward to that conversation I'm going to have with Charlie Demers in a in just a few minutes, I just wanted to get that up front because some of you, it's interesting. Uh, I get emails and uh, feedback from a lot of people over the years. Uh, you, you know, my my interviews with guests that people all know and that draw people in that may not have listened to the show are one thing. But a lot of people have told me over the years that my interviews with people they've never heard of are generally better interviews. And you look, I I have my own opinions, and I'm not. I don't think they're they're better necessarily. But I think what makes them interesting is that people like yourself out there listen to the show, and you're like, I don't know this guy. Am I going to listen? And those of you who are into the show and not just into celebrity, you end up hearing these cats you've never heard, or these women that you've never heard. And I I do think women can be cats too. I'm very sensitive to my language right now at this moment in history, but. Uh, but they, they tend to, uh, some people tend to enjoy the unknown people to them uh, better than the larger, uh, largely known people. So 
I don't know why I'm giving all this setup. I'm just a, a big fan of Charlie, and I was happy he was down uh, here for the for doing some book promotion and meeting with people because he is a he he's one of the good ones. He's one of the good guys in this racket of comedy. So onward, I'd like to thank. Everybody who came down to the the intimate shows at Dynasty Typewriter here in Los Angeles, a great venue. And on Thursday night, we had a we had a pretty pretty free form show. A lot of the stuff I've been working on, trying to put together, but it was about an hour and forty minutes, and uh, a lot of it was new stuff. I had a lot of uh, freedom of mind, which I like to do and I like to have in a in a small environment. But uh, Saturday was a little rough. Saturday was a little rough, folks. I I will not. Uh, I will not deny that. Saturday night, that was the day that uh, all women in this country were psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually assaulted by the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. That, you know, the trauma that is real that comes from something like that action on behalf of this Senate and this president is trauma. And it's trauma to a large group of people, uh, mostly women, but you know, all of us. Now, there are obviously two sides to this, and I still am fascinated that the, at how close the, it is, that there, there is sort of an almost 50-50 divide on how people feel about what's going on in this country, and I am baffled by that. And I don't need any feedback from right-wing people about, you know, the reason you're baffled is because you're whatever. There's a hyper-nationalistic shit show going on in this country, and it seems almost unresolvable. But the bottom line is, is that on Saturday, uh, all women in this country were psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and within the laws of this country and how they work, assaulted. And that's insanely traumatic and can create a lot of hopelessness, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. But the issue becomes sort of like, well, how do we move through that? How do you stay engaged and, and, and uh, take action? And obviously, we're all hoping the voting works. And when I say I hope the voting works, I, I hope that people get out. I hope that all of you are, are getting registered. You do need to register to vote. And I also hope that that uh, that it works just on a uh, on, a, on a, a bureaucratic and technological level that it's not going to be fucked with because this government that we have has done nothing to protect that on purpose. <laughs> Obviously, having performed on Saturday night for, you know, my, they were my crowd. They came to see me and mostly grown ups. It was 10 o'clock at night. But when my buddy Ryan Singer went on stage, I could hear the type of laughter that was happening. I, I, I know that kind of laughter. I know the laughter that I experienced uh, working in New York City uh, in the weeks and months after 9-11. There was a laughter on behalf of people. People didn't know what to do with themselves, so they come out and they want relief. It's not even that they want distraction. They want connection and they want some sort of reprieve. They don't want to get lost. They don't want to run away. But they, you know, they hope they, they just want a break. They want an engaged human emotional break from, you know, what seems like a dire and hopeless situation, which it does seem like that. And I could hear the quality of laughter, that type of laughter, the laughter of, of trauma, you know, comes in spurts. It's like, ah, it's almost a, a, a desperate reflex to to find some sort of relief. 
And and I could feel it Saturday night. And you know, and I had to address the you know, I had to address conversationally in between bits my own sort of sadness and frustration at what's happening. But somehow or another, we have to go on, we have to keep living and, and we have to, you know, do what we can do. You do what's in front of you and you also, you know, make plans to do whatever action you can to uh to correct the course or at least give it your best shot. Uh, to to you know make our way through this fucking dark period, we no one knows what's going to happen. But there and there's no real way to console yourself. I, I mean, you know, countries have fallen. We see we've seen it in my lifetime all around the world. Things shift. Places become shitholes. Places become tyrannical disasters, dict- dictatorial disasters, uh, fucking uh, banana republics, and we always thought we were above that. And we always thought that that America, you know, given that we were given a certain amount of freedom to sort of live the lives we want to do and, and, and make a way for ourselves, that there is a it's not so much entitlement, but I, I can't fault people that got too comfortable uh, in, in the sense that that's sort of one of the reasons we live here. One of the reasons we we love this country. But I do think a lot of us got over the eight years of uh, of Obama. There was a kind of what were we doing? You know, just working on me, you know, being mindful getting our core tight but yeah now you know now we are where we are and i'm not blaming anybody you know that's just why not experience relief and excitement and progress well now it's all been shattered and uh we have to figure out how to re-engage and not crumble into ourselves and allow and turn that anger inward as they say which is what depression is and now there is plenty of evidence for what we assume the future will be that's real anger that you should feel and if you do turn that on yourself you will get depressed and apathetic and uh crumble so don't start drinking again don't stay in bed all day live your life take care of the people that are in your life do the right thing by them and then you know take the actions that we can however you're able to do it with the time you have to to try to uh do your civic duty and and do what's right so take care of yourselves and, and, and stay strong, stay focused, you know, process the grief, process the anger, but don't, uh, don't internalize it. Don't give yourself cancer and don't take yourself out of the game. And don't drink if you're sober. Okay? And vote. Could you? So Charlie Demers, this is a, a, a special conversation because he's a Canadian comic, but he's also a Canadian activist. And in Canada, there's still the ability to have an active political dialogue and social dialogue around things that uh, you know many people don't even know the definition of or certainly the application of in this country like socialism class differences you know indigenous peoples so it was it was a it was a it was a very well-rounded and, and great conversation he's a great guy and his new book is a crime novel that is uh, in, politically informed it's called property values it comes out on october 16th you can pre-order it now and this is me talking to Canadian comedian Charlie Demaris. These are my big problems. They're, they're, I mean, I aspire to them. Yeah, that and my diet, which I don't want to bring up again because <laughs> you've told me that uh, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're tired of people half your size yeah i well i said a third but you're that's very kind of you <laughs> <laughs> well who are they they're they're on uh, they're watching their weight these guys you're staying with uh just i mean there's 
you know, fat is one of those problems where when people talk about it yeah. and they'll like you, someone who is just objectively much yeah. like they're standing there, they know that you're a fat guy and they're like yeah. a regular size yeah. guy and then they'll talk yeah. about how fat they are right. and how like just with that feeling of disgust at themselves. Right. <laughs> And, and, uh, you know, like Graham Clark has a joke about like when, a, when a beautiful person says like, Oh, I look like I'm such a mess. And yeah. it's like, well, you must think I'm a monster. Like <laughs> if you are worried about, so yeah, I'm in a, like, uh, you know, Trader Joe's yesterday with, um, yeah. a thin young friend who's yeah. counting the, uh, he goes, Oh, five grams of sugar in this, um, fat free yogurt yeah. it was five grams of sugar that's up there yeah. and uh, <laughs> I, I, I was like I gotta stay a whole week with him <laughs> so what are you gonna do I mean I mean, I don't know if it, it implies that you're a monster but uh, it does imply that your friends are self involved uh, I mean that's a possibility I mean I think uh, it's I think taking a certain amount yeah. of I do like I do try to to eat healthy when I can I'm more of a it's more of a binge problem than a eating bad food really problem for I've, me. I've, yeah. always, I've always wondered that but it's hard to breach the topic with the you've people. always wondered that about me well or just about, about people who are a little heavier in general, in general. Yeah. like it's like because I well I mean we went out to eat and you weren't holding back I no. mean I, <laughs> <laughs> from what that's, I re- that's kind from, of you to remind me. For, no, from, from what I recall, no, there I, was blueberry I, gastrique involved. I there think. was a blueberry gastrique. The, yeah. A famous. Uh, I mean, what was the name of that place? Argo. Yeah, the Argo Cafe. I mean, yeah. this could be the the like the death knell if I like, because um, you know everybody keeps worried about uh, the secrets going to get out about the about Argo. About the Argo, and it'll <laughs> just be overrun. It was almost on. Are oh, you mean Street. the Argo uh, Cafe in Vancouver? <laughs> Ontario in second. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, uh, but yeah, there was a blueberry gastrique. Yeah. Duck, I think. Was it duck? It was a duck confit. Yeah. (laughs) I always get the duck. I mean, and when you're eating duck at lunch, I mean, I was, (laughs) I was at the Argo a few weeks ago uh, with a friend who, um, you know, is a high up at an uh, animation studio that's close by Atomic Cartoons. They're like a couple blocks away from the Argo. And uh, we went over and there's the lunch specials board. And we got, brisket yeah which was served on yeah. gnocchi oh. brisket and gnocchi <laughs> is a that's the end of your day like it's not a lunch <laughs> it's like okay, to afternoon canceled <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah uh and then those are the moments when you have a problem but no i would say like on the whole that's so good i tend to eat Fairly healthy things in unhealthy amounts would be, I, I would think. Yeah, the tendency. Um, I the brisket on on gnocchi. I'm still hung up on that. That like uh, that's a. I used to work at a deli, and they used to make a sandwich. If you could call it a sandwich, it was basically <laughs> brisket in between two potato pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> You know. I, I just nearly did a spit take all <laughs> yeah. over your uh, yeah, and I think there's like gravy involved. You know, it's just sort of like crazy. I mean, it's, it sounds so good. Yeah, I've been on I've been on a sugar detox. Once I get into a diet thing, I could get I've gotten emaciated in my life and thought like this is amazing. And people are saying, "Are you sick? You are look you sick? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get older, you get gaunt. Yeah. But like, what's the process? So you consider yourself heavy? Oh, I mean, you're you're being you're being very sweet about it. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a <laughs> I'm a very fat man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, so I'm the second generation in my family that I know of who, so my, my mom, um, 
both my mom and I were very young when we lost a parent. So yeah. my mom lost her dad when she was seven, and my mom died when I was ten. She she oh, had really? uh, cancer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we both, I guess, you know, and I've heard this. There's a there's a great um, Canadian writer named Paul Quarrington who talked about you know when his mom died in his mid-teens yeah. like then he just spun off into booze and drugs and, really because that's what you do with the but if you're 10 or 7 you don't necessarily right. you don't think oh i'm gonna and so so i've I'm often wondered start if I, shooting dope exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah so yeah. maybe if i'd been 20 when that had happened i'd be a, a heroin addict and, and i'd and then <laughs> <laughs> and instead, I got on the gastrique. Uh, I got right on the gastrique. I guess that makes sense, you know, the sort of like uh, you know, the kind of comforting, like strange attempts at self-parenting when, when you lose a parent or they're detached or whatever, like because you, you're sort of left to your own devices emotionally to feel good. I have been told that there is a... Um, uh, like orphaned among obese men, uh, like some sort of orphaning or quasi orphaning. It, it is kind of overrepresented that it uh -huh. does tend to be like, um, and, you know, I mean, when, when my when my daughter was born and I would watch her, you know, nursing yeah. at my at my w wife's breast, it, it it occurred to me that like you ha you're struck by this feeling of like every feeling of safety and security. Yeah. Uh, and comfort that she's yeah. ever going to have in her life yeah. is going to be essentially like a metaphor for what she's literally sure. feeling right now. Yeah. And so you can definitely understand it, how, right. how uh, putting stuff into your mouth, feeding right. yourself, um, sure. it is a kind of- Very uh, satisfying. Uh, yeah. And it's a surrogate kind of uh, parenting. It's and also, a, when, yeah, right. And then when you're not eating, it's just you're panicking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, like I get, like uh, I, I get that with, like I notice that about myself in terms of doing those things, like to to feel better. You know, there's nothing better than just shoveling food into your face. Yeah. Really, I, I mean, and I've done a lot of drugs. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than just eating. And when I'm not eating or I'm not fidgeting with something or I'm not like engaged, like I was smoking a cigar when you walk up here, like yeah. they're just like if I'm not on my phone, if I'm just sitting there, I got about ten good minutes with that. Then Minute, the, I, w I thought you were going to say seconds. And, I mean, no. minutes is like, I feel like, isn't that normal? Can well, people sit for longer than that? Sure, I think so. Wow. I, I But like, I can sit for longer, but the thoughts aren't going to be great. No. They're, no. <laughs> it's going to go downhill. Yeah. But uh, but that, it's interesting that you can tag it to that. So she died when you were 10? She, I, I was 10, yeah. She, start, she, started, she got very sick when I was five. And so she would be in and out of the hospital- um, you know, sometimes it'd be six weeks at a time. Sometimes there'd be kind yeah. of no warning. You'd go to school and then come home. Yeah. And, you know, during the day, mom had had to go to the hospital and maybe she was going to be there for, for weeks. Uh. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, I, I mean, it was an early political lesson because it was, it was laid out to me pr in pretty clear language for a little kid that like, if we lived in a different country, this this could have wiped us out. I mean, it, it yeah. is essentially it's the kind of thing where like, right? Uh, if if we'd been in the states, right? Uh, it it would have been I would have had um, all the emotional trauma, but also my family would have been just economically if wiped, they didn't have the insurance. Wiped off the yeah. Map. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, God, it's uh, like it's it's almost a. a yeah, it's 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 a political education, but there there's something also sort of like uh, indoctrinating about it. Like totally, Canada's the best. 
<laughs> we, yeah. I mean, it, it, there, these kinds of moments do keep coming up in my, uh, you know, the, the prime minister who um, legislated official multiculturalism uh, in the 70s, Pierre Trudeau, uh, that's what led to my mother-in-law moving from Chicago to um, Toronto. She's from Hong Kong. Uh-huh. And on my wedding night, she was, uh, my mother-in-law was quite into her cups and she demanded that I acknowledge that Pierre Trudeau was responsible for my, for my marriage. That if it weren't for Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau uh, senior, Trudeau senior. Yeah. Yes. Justin's dad. Yeah. That, that, that I would not have met the love of my life. Oh, that so I would, now that she's I doing it to you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Canada's the best. <laughs> yeah. I mean, believe me, dude. I mean, I think I talked to you right, you know, right when Trump was elected and I was looking. I, you know, I, I talked to you. I t- and then you gave me the bad news that, like, yeah, they're going to slap fifteen percent on anything you buy in Vancouver now. <laughs> they're, they're not going to yeah. happen. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I mean, the thing with Van- with Canada in general is there's a tendency towards smugness because we're so so. It's like. Canada's like the the me the 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 three hundred pound dude who like but the 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 older brother is like is like strung out on meth and so it's like you're just the fat guy the so con- you don't have to deal with your own the, problem the conjoined twin yeah it's strung out on meth because Canada is like Canada's got horrible problems with inequality and racism and environmental devastation yeah. all all these kinds of you know there are, there are huge parts of the country on on um you know indigenous reserves where you can't drink the water that comes out of the sink yeah but every night and we all watch american television we watch american movies and yeah. you turn on cnn and there's some guy <laughs> you know some senator from yeah. wherever yeah. saying oh we're presenting the bill we're going to use <laughs> mexican babies as snowshoes and like <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're like, yeah. Well, compared to that dude, yeah. we don't. It doesn't seem as nuts, but it's it's a real problem because people put off dealing with Canada's very real problems. Yeah. I think that I mean, I've always assumed, and I might be wrong, that there's something about being able to to live re- with su- with some self respect because you can get sick and and not be yeah. afraid that it it does change the 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 disposition uh, on almost a genetic level totally you, you know that there's sort of a, a a comfort that what i find when i go to canada it might i may be romanticizing because i've i've gone both ways I, i've gone up there and thought you know this is the most boring place in the world and then after <laughs> trump i've seen I, i've gone up thinking like this is the way life should be up here so <laughs> you know like it go, well boring is good in some way like no, I sometimes think that's, you that's want what, i think uh, that's true yeah i, I think that the, it feels like there's that whatever component that socialism on whatever level may bring is a a a lack of of the insane kind of greedy competition that that is at the core of almost every transaction both emotional and financial in this country i mean yeah but we have those (laughs) guys we have those guys too right but they have to be passive aggressive about like so that so there is to a certain extent there is a kind of honesty to at least a money grubber in the united states like doesn't feel like they have to hide it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like the uh like i you know i was in beverly hills earlier today and you know there's guys driving around in a ferrari yeah and I mean, any you for as a Canadian, I just think like even a rich Canadian would be embarrassed to be that on the nose, <laughs> right, like to yeah. drive a Ferrari right, in Beverly right. Hills. They yeah. would be, um, but there's an honesty to that at least, yeah. where you know what you're dealing with. Yeah, and I think, 
Um, Canadian racism is much more passive aggressive. Canadian um, greed is much more passive aggressive. It's oh, just, yeah. and and I I don't want to say that it's. I, I I really wouldn't want to come across as saying like things are just as bad. So you're saying they don't as... use the N word; they just give a condescending look. Some of them use the N word, okay. but but yeah, definitely condescending looks. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there there's uh, although now, I mean, in the age of social media, you get to see now every little explosion of. Sure. So there was uh, there was a small town, you know, coffee donut sh- donut shop uh, confrontation that went right. viral recently from small town Canada there's definitely some ugliness I mean there's some there's some really good parts well that's the other problem with with the type of shameless ugliness that's going on now here is that it it kind of somehow or another gives some kind of um zeitgeistian free pass yeah to uh to monsters everywhere I mean it's like I remember you know Slavoj Žižek during the like uh George W Bush torture stuff talking right. about philosophically the important distinction between a society where we know torture's happening but we pretend it isn't yeah versus the guys who just go yeah no we torture yeah you want to e- see a picture exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um and that there is a uh there's an important that desire for the hypocrisy actually does play a slightly civilizing sure. role of yeah. just like wanting to pretend that you're not doing. Well, yeah, Den- denial is an important co- uh, uh, part of civilization. Yeah, <laughs> it's an important component. <laughs> I don't uh, think that's true. Yeah, no, see what I. But yeah. um, into, into at least pretending you're civilized for the most part. That you know, yeah. that that you know what we're living in now is some sort of strange uh, mixture of insane constant barrage of lying and yet the most transparent uh government that we've had in years yeah because of the persistence of the press and just because of the shameless behavior of of these uh craven monsters but that was the terrifying thing and in a way that was where you know a situation in canada kind of preceded the american version which was what we had with mayor rob uh, Ford the, in toronto yeah yeah um it, you know that was the first time somebody said, well, what if I just didn't resign in disgrace? <laughs> like, what if I just, yeah. I know you're saying I have to, yeah. but I don't legally have to. Right. And if it's just, a, yeah. you know, that I'm being governed by social norms, what if I just, yeah. and, and it's the same thing of like, what if I just don't mind if you call me racist? Well, that's the fucked up thing is like, you know, I've been doing that bit on stage or talking about it. And like, so there are no rules, apparently. Yeah. We, we, there was just an understanding laid down by a certain continuity of, of, of presidential behavior, but nothing was written down. <laughs> so I say like, you know, I think it's time we make notes. We should make notes and people should write some shit down. Yeah. If we survive this. Yeah. Norms. Yeah, you know, just like we just assumed that people would behave properly. Why would anyone assume that? Well, the other thing is that feeling of like when your guy gets in. So like, you know, there was an immense concentration of executive power during the Obama years, too. Sure. That was a continuation of what was happening under um, George W. Bush. But because people felt like, wow, this is one of our guys, this is yeah. a good guy, it's, right. it's okay, and what could go wrong? Well, yeah, I guess there was always this, the assumption constitutionally yeah. that uh, that these these people, 
these leaders would put the nation uh, in, into some sort of priority uh, around, you know, how people are treated, respect for the law yeah. and, and, and respect for the actual system of government. But once the government over time got turned out to be just this, like uh, as PGO works at a parliament of whores, you know, that they don't give a fuck yeah. about the country, really. That's the one thing I will give Canada is I feel like the lies that we tell are at least the good lot. Like, so there is this idea of like, Canada's not, we, we don't uh, conquer countries. We're a peacekeeping country. Yeah. And all of that is bullshit, but at least it's nice that that's what people want to believe yeah. about the country. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, so it is kind of, you know, the lies that a civilization tells itself, right. they are important. The other thing you, you risk, and you're, you're probably more lefty than I am, I don't know. I consider myself, uh, you know, a lefty yeah. to a degree, but I mean, but the, but there is an idealism to progressiveness that is, is almost unattainable, and and I'll, you know what we're dealing with in this country, I think a bit is that we don't have a real leftist movement that has any traction governmentally. So when you get real leftist thoughts and ideas, you get people that are to the right of the leftist, but still within the same party-ish. Yeah. Who are like, you know, you're going to fuck this up. You know, we got nothing but monsters in 48% of the country that just want to, you know, they, 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 they want to steamroll all of it. So if we're going to have this problem amongst ourselves, you know, how are we going to move forward? And then there's always a negotiation, which implies that denial that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that uh, the left... The problem is that the left and the center often have to work together. Yeah. But the left understands the anger that's right. on the right. The, yeah. And then the center doesn't, just doesn't understand anger. The, 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 they think that anger always has to be ugly. And I think, you know, people on the left and people on the right, they- Way right, right. Way, way right. They, 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 yeah, they at least, they, they get yeah, that right. something's wrong yeah. and that being angry about the situation is yeah. a natural human. Now, the question is, do you take that in a really ugly, racist, misogynist, like how does that anger come out? Sure. Because there are ways for anger to come out that can be really beautiful and, and can actually make things better. Yeah, transcendent. Yeah. yeah. Or, or at least, uh, you know- uh, you know, tran transgressive culturally, but uh, elevating. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, okay. So you're 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 being told as your mother is dying that uh, you're better than Americans. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> uh, at least we still have a house. Yeah. So yeah. my dad would say, you may have lost your mother, but always keep your smug sense of self-righteousness. <laughs> no but, one can take that from you. But I think the point I was going to make, and oddly I'm going to get back to it in terms of seeing your own daughter it is, right? Yeah. yeah nursing, is that this idea of primal union, the idea that you know there is a period in, in, in a child's life where they are in true symbiotic relationships with the mother to the point where like what this is something i learned psychologically that that at some point you have to actually disrupt that on purpose yeah in yeah. order for that person to have a sense of self so if that isn't actively like if you continue the symbiotic dynamic through codependency as the child ages you're going to get somebody that's going to be in need of self-parenting and it's going to end up a bad thing that's really you know what I'm saying? That like, and it just makes you feel like too much love or not enough love. Right. They're gonna end up fucked. Like it's so hard to. I I always tend towards the slightly um, sappier. Too much love. And yeah. Well, I think it's a matter of of, like, if I look back at my life, you know, just that, an ability to be uh, firm and have 
you know, uh, identifiable uh, values. Yeah. Uh, and and not buckle uh, to pouting. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, you know, you 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 might be serving that purpose. No, but that's the thing too. Is like when you w- as a parent, I mean, the the discipline that you give mm-hmm. is a form of love, and 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 saying no to your kid is a form of love. You like, just got to sell them on that. Well. <laughs> I mean, well, you don't really. They're much smaller than you, and they can't reach these things on their own. Uh, like, uh, and and she'll figure that out. Yeah, down I'll, the line. How old is she? She's four. Oh, um, so I mean, right now it's just peak. Just everything's adorable. Everything's hilarious. Yeah. Like it's she's just this little um, person. She just like. Where there's just every day, there's some. Uh, two weeks ago, she says, because uh, my father-in-law was in town. She's, you know, she's figuring out, you know, who's got penises, who has vulvas, yeah. and then, you know, she says to me, she says, uh, Daddy, she's figuring that out what because everyone's naked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, this is the other thing about Canada that you guys don't realize. Um, so she, so she, a lot says, of nude partying, parenting says, nude. Yeah, she says to me, she says. Um, Daddy, uh, do you have a penis? And I said, yes. She goes, uh, do you have an ugly penis? Like, that's the follow-up? Like, <laughs> she's got sub-question. Um, uh, what's she using as her gauge? <laughs> I and mean, then you might want to ask that question. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and then it was, uh, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a constant, like, uh, I remember her walking in on me in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, when she was much younger, yeah. and she just points, um, she points at yeah. my garage and says, "That your vulva there?" Yeah, like, said, uh, like just kind of yeah. making chit chat. Yeah, um, but uh, you know that whole thing is very different for me because, you know, like I said, I lost my mom when I was ten. I was in a house with it was me, my brother, my dad. Yeah. So the whole like feminine side of the the world yeah. was like it's uh and now you know i should qualify that by saying like both my dad and my brother are gay it was not a macho house by any stretch they're both gay they're both gay huh i mean i mean if if you could see me you'd know how hard it is to <laughs> stay straight you know 18 years in a house with this no it's um it, it yeah they're both gay uh how'd that happen well, I, I don't think there are any rules. Yeah. But I mean, was your dad gay when he was married? He was. He was. So he, oh. so, well, he, he was, and he, yeah. So this is, so yeah. he came, he, so my dad's from Montreal. Oh, um, that explains yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gay. It's European. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a uh, uh, Quebecois, um, Francophone, French speaker. In the 70s, he hitchhiked out to Vancouver. Yeah. He's about 20 years old. And he writes a letter back to my grandmother in Montreal coming out of the closet to her. Yeah. It wasn't a general coming out, but he let her. Was know. Vancouver a, a groovier place at the time? or I, like? I, yeah, I think it was just, it was a combination of like, um, he, he was hitchhiking with his buddy who yeah. had uh, a sister who was working at a nur- as a nurse in Vancouver. Uh, it's, I think it's a really attractive place for a lot of French Canadians because it's... Um, Vancouver's almost totally outside of the historic English French kind of seems Swedish. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's an it's an Asian city in a lot of it's a, it's a Pacific city. I guess the Swedish element it, look, it just looks new architecturally. Yeah, absolutely. everything is sort of uniform in some way. Vancouver and Chicago had the similar thing of like they both had fires early in the history of the city mm. and had to decide like how they would rebuild. Right. 
And Chicago was like, we're just going to make this the most magical architectural place yeah. on earth. <laughs> and Vancouver was like, we're going to make the most forgettable buildings anyone's yeah, ever we're gonna, seen. We're just going to take it all from the same set of plans. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case it all burns <laughs> down again. Uh, so, um, but yeah, he ended up in, in Vancouver. Vancouver did, as it does today, have a pretty thriving gay scene. Yeah. Um, but then uh, he met my mother. They were working together. Uh, he met my mother. and Doing what? Uh, they were working dispatch, uh, which they were taking like emergency calls. Oh, so, um, yeah. And uh, uh, they, uh, they met, they fell in love. Uh, and he wrote, my dad wrote another letter back to my grandmother saying, I've Scratched met a woman, that. I've yeah. fallen in love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so, so they were together for, you know, until, until, uh, my mother died in 1991. And then, um, all through my teens, I thought that my dad was like, you know, one of those Sicilian widows who just yeah. like enters a period of mourning that just lasts the rest of his life because yeah. he never moved on really? romantically. Well, no, he did. No, I know, but you but thought that, but there was nothing, no action, no boyfriends. No. I mean, he, he would have friends sure. who would like come over sure. and-, and, and uh, um, Did they seem like they were having a better time than most <laughs> men? <laughs> There's no- no, no flags. You know, no rainbow flags. I, I think. That, uh, I think. Like when you, it, it's in those. Even in those days, it's not that long ago, but like twenty years ago, sure. twenty five years ago, yeah. the worst thing in the world you could think of was like your dad was gay. Right. Right. Um, At least to your friends, I guess. Oh no, I guess you to know what I mean. Too. As yeah, a teenage yeah, sure. boy, yeah. um, and so I had, I, I had a, I had an idea that he was gay when I was about thirteen, and I just pushed it down to a place where I, where I couldn't, um, right, see it, right. So. He then came out to us when he was, uh, when I was like 20. Oh. Um, and uh, the, you know, by then I was already, you know, t totally fine with it, obviously, politically and more like, like not at all. The only thing that was messed up was that I realized in retrospect that I had built up a whole false idea of how to properly grieve and mourn, mm. which was to just like stop your whole life dead in its tracks like you never move on because i thought oh so you thought you were emotionally aping your dad well yeah because he was to me he was this hero right who sure had never he had never replaced right his love so how did you manifest that as a kid i mean like you know what was your version of that's, that's i mean it's a good question i think it's still sort of playing out uh now uh -huh. i'm in my um i'm i'm gonna be I'm 38. Yeah. I was 10 years old when my mother died and I've like only recently started to like get beyond like the trauma of that at like even at like just a basic physical level. Like it's uh it's been a it's stuck with me a really long time. And that's uh, the feeling of loss. The feeling of loss, the feeling of like just visceral anger of having had that taken away. Yeah, the injustice of it. The yeah. feeling of like uh of just being able to kind of start crying kind of at the drop of a hat. Right, like that right. feeling of um yeah. if you think about it or something hits you the wrong way and yeah, you yeah. start um it just uh, it it never it never became a scar. It was always scabbed over. Like it was never um, right, right. Never fully healed. <clears throat> yeah, and, and the scab would come off occasionally. Yeah, and I think part of that was that I thought that you kept that connection with that person alive by basically that's interesting because moving on. We're sort of talking about, or I was anyways, about that that the sense of primal union needing to be sort of um, 
you know, uh, disrupted. disrupted. But disrupted in a managed way as opposed to that right, kind of the, like well, wrenching. Right. Yeah. Why? I think that, that it seems that the grief should have been as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, the know, grief disrupted. That's a really no, interesting. That's what I mean that, yeah. that, that, you know, what you're holding on to is, is, is this strange kind of the symbiotic uh, hold of her death. Totally. Right? So that it just never goes away because there's like anger, bitterness, all those, all the stages. But they're all things that you're feeling that uh, are passions that you're feeling for this person. And so as long as you have them, I think the term is called oh. wounded attachments. Oh. The idea is like, as long as you're still destroyed if, by it, yeah. it's like that huh. that connection is is still alive. So you, you have all this self-awareness around it. Have you done any, got any help for it? Um, I've gotten help for like other, you know, I've, I've been in you know, therapy for a long time, but I was mostly dealing with, um, uh, I had obsessive compulsive disorder and various anxiety disorders. Yeah. And it's all from the same source, I bet. I think so. But you, you, with cognitive behavioral therapy, you basically kind of, you you deal with, stop doing that, stop doing those things (laughs) essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, haven't necessarily driven exactly at the, um, right. The source, like the, the kind of the sort of nuclear center, um, becoming a father myself, like becoming a father, becoming a parent, I should Mm. say, um, I think helped because there is that understanding of like, once you, once you are a parent, you know, that, if your kid ever lost you, yeah, they, they would they would devastate you to think that they would never move on and have a happy right. life. That, right, that, that you would not want for them to throw themselves on right. the funeral pyre, which is like what maybe a ten year old boy thinks right. is for the right thing to do. Well, that's interesting. That the what's the anxiety and OCD? <laughs> yeah, because OCD is is basically a a, a a compulsive desire for control, right? For yeah some sort of s- system so the ver- the subset of ocd that i have is a version called um primary obsessions yeah. um obsessive compulsive disorder which is essentially intrusive thoughts oh um, yeah oh, oh, like the morbid ones yeah which are almost always they're like some way of um it, it, it's basically about thinking violations of your moral code so like um some people have black like if you're religious right you might have blasphemous intrusive thoughts and actually all my first thoughts were blasphemous why'd you grow up catholic uh anglican which is like um in the states they call that episcopalian Uh uh-huh which is basically it's like it's like diet catholicism yeah yeah it's it's like it's like not quite protestantism not quite catholicism um, and I was about, you know, maybe five, six years old and I would have the, the phrase, uh, I hate you, God would run through my head. And then I think, no, no, I don't hate you. I love you. I, I love God. And I, yeah. and you'd have these intrusive thoughts. So that was before your mom passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this kind of stuff is all kind of part of it's hardwired or chemical. Well, no, but like, it seems like in my mind, given what I know about you and, and what we do for a living, I'm like, so you've found a good outlet for him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, Pretty well, the yeah. The intrusive thoughts are sort of like, no, nah, might as well just say that one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> get, yeah. Get paid if I say that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, like one of the things that I did love about stand-up when the intrusive thoughts were really bad, and I, I've actually had really good success in, in treating these. I got an yeah. amazing psychologist. and, and um, What is the fundamental treatment? The, uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy, like, yeah. Like you get it and you're like, no. 
Yeah, you just like like you sit with the anxiety for a while. You um, of having the thought. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a a great book out there called Overcoming Obsessive Thoughts, and it kind of lays out the um, the basic sort of uh, CBT approach to yeah, yeah. treating OCD. Um, but one of the things that I like early on in stand up, I just I loved that the exigencies of doing a show, like that whole like show must go on thing yeah. is that it leaves no time for rumination. Right. You can't go back over a moment and pour over it while you're on oh, stage. Oh, you do that too? Uh, oh. Cuz yeah. that's not intrusive thought. That's another thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's I have that really bad. Cuz it's what but they're both kind of it just seems they're both What's interesting, and in, in, I'm not psychoanalyzing, but it's interesting is they both seem like just sort of ingrained opportunities to beat the shit out of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Which, Which you-, you know, I think, you know, and I have done some kind of, uh, you know, self-administered Freudianism of like, look, you know, you lose your mom. Who's your mom in most cases, you know, and I know, I know this isn't everybody's experience of having a mother, yeah. but in most cases, your mother is the person who... If 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 you blew up a plane, yeah. she's the one to go. Oh, I, I well, I know we can sort this out. I love you. Whatever you know, like the, your mother is the is the place that you know you know that you're loved. You know yeah. that you're good. Supposed to, yeah, yeah, supposed to. Yeah. That's the ideal situation, right? So if you ha- if you don't have that, you know, and you know, comedy of course is also a place where you get to go up on stage and have people who sit in the dark right. tell you that you're good. Right, and um, also that thing I was talking about before is that you know the, the sort of self parenting you put in place yeah. is you know it's got no um, it's got no you know cap to it. So you know it's it's it, you know most likely you know just to you, you mean you're going to be incredibly judgmental of yourself. Yeah, you know because you don't know what you're doing. And a lot of times, what I read about children who are uncomfortable for whatever reason. When they're when they're too young to to know better, they just assume that their parents are great. So whatever it is, must be their fault. Right. So then you're on top of yourself like that. Absolutely. You know, I feel weird. They're great because they're my parents. It must be me. I've always had such a deep envy of people who go into situations where something's wrong, yeah. and their immediate instinct is like, what have the other people in this situation done to make this wrong? Because yeah. mine is just like, well, obviously yeah. I fucked this yeah, up. Yeah, the city's on fire. What did I do? <laughs> yeah. God damn it, did Precisely. I? How did this connect to me? Yeah, it's like it's double-edged sword. It's like, it's problematic in the thinking, but it's also incredibly self-centered. Totally narcissistic. <laughs> So, okay, so your dad comes out when you're 20, but what about your brother? He came out just before that. My dad was waiting for my brother to come out. He, I think my dad thought it would put undue but pressure. But your dad knew? Everybody knew that my brother was gay. Oh. Yeah. Before. All the kids at school, all oh, the kids at, yeah, no, like, so my, it was not a hidden yeah. uh, thing with, with my right. brother. He was a- um, But did your brother and your dad know? Like, did your brother know about your dad? Uh, that's and- a good question. I mean, I think my brother sort of- um, he had a better sense than I did. Is he older or younger? He's a, a, a younger. Oh. So my brother's my brother's three years younger. Yeah. But only feels that way recently. Yeah. So we, I, I feel like, uh, you know, we, he and I ran in different directions from the trauma of um, our mother's death. So I was ten, he was seven. Yeah. And the next day, I was eighteen years old, and he was like three. Right. So. Uh, my aunt and my grandmother, we lived in the house with them and, and like my brother really, um, but you know, my, my mother had asked my aunt basically to be our mom going yeah. forward. And I wasn't so much able to take her up on that. What's, right. what's been amazing is I've been able to take her up on that 
um, as being a grandparent to my right. daughter. Sure, yeah. And their relationship is incredible. But my brother really, like, he was a very young seven, and I became a very, very old ten. Right. You fought. Uh, like so you. we were like, and and then you know, my dad, um, my dad had become a teacher. Uh, uh, he, he, he had worked dispatch and he was a suit salesman when I was a kid. And then, um, uh, as my mother was dying, the two of them sort of figured, you know, what could he do where he'd have enough money to raise the two of us and he would, um, he'd have the same holidays as us. Yeah. So he became a teacher. Interesting. Um, of yeah. what? Uh, uh, so, so at the time it was fairly easy, especially if you were a francophone in parts of the country that didn't have a lot of French speakers Yeah, because, uh, we had just started as a country, the French immersion program where you could send your kids to school to learn French. And, uh, so they, especially in places like Vancouver where they, there were no francophones, yeah. it was like, if you had a, if you had a, a university degree and you could come and, and, uh, learn how to teach, get a yeah. teaching certificate. Um, you could get a job pretty easily. Um, so he went back to school? So he went back to school, um, and then he discovered this, like, it was like a vocation for him. I mean, it was like this, it was a passion. Yeah. Um, and he went back, he did a master's in education, and, and uh, so while he was doing that, I was about 11, 12, and I was, you know, making dinner for my brother and I, and we were in this weird kind of, I'm half- your parent and I'm half your brother wow. and yeah. and uh, so I think that put a lot of stress on the situation sure. plus we were a house where there were two gay men in the closet and one uh, guy with obsessive compulsive disorder who didn't know what it was and, and so two didn't old, tell old ladies upstairs <laughs> <laughs> no, by that time we were living on our oh, own. Okay. Yeah, um, uh, and uh, and my aunt would kill me if I didn't say that she wasn't an old lady. My my granny was old, but yeah. uh, no, my aunt was uh, no, my well, aunt was very my beautiful. Age. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah, it was already a it was already a house where like yeah. each of us was in our own little closet, uh, yeah. and all dealing with kind of some wow. sort of post trauma, and it was. Uh, it, we're a very close family. Um, uh, uh, my brother and I are still, you know, when I get off the phone with my brother, you know, we say, I love you. Yeah, like, that's sure. the, uh, yeah. but, um, but. That's interesting. You're so tight and probably like, you know, out of complete necessity. But it, but it is kind of interesting that that you, you're all maintaining something. I, I wouldn't say a lie, but you No, know. but you are. You're, you're dissembling. Yeah. Like there there is something that you don't feel um, that everybody else in the house is ready to ready to hear. I wonder, but I wonder if there was a shame component to it all. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if there was for me, I can't speak for, for my brother on yeah. on that one. I mean, I know that, you know, that was, he was right on the cusp of attitudes really shifting in urban centers at uh -huh. least in North yeah. America. Right. He got, so he kind of lucked out. He, I think he did in some ways. Yeah. He would have been even luckier if he'd gone to school maybe five years later right, than he right. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it was hell for him. Um, and I think, you know, that was a big part of why he didn't want to go to college, university. And, and so he, like my dad, went back later in life and learned his, oh, his yeah? trade. Yeah. He, what's he do? He's a horticulturalist. Oh, So he works at the... Um, I uh, think he told me that. Yeah, yeah, he works at the Botanical Gardens at the University oh, of British Oh, yeah, he told Columbia. me to go see a yeah. plant there. Wasn't there one of those death plants there or something? I mean, it's it's incredible. Like, it's just like, it's it's gorgeous. And so he, he does... Um, you know, he posts these photos all day. He just spends it. He spends his whole day with just beauty. Plants. I mean, it's yeah, it's gorgeous. So, what do you think provoked you? Like, you know, what what was your position? You know, carrying this, these, uh, the what are the intrusive thoughts and anxiety and obsessive compulsion and the bitterness over your mother and you know and and having the responsibility of uh, that you had because of her absence. I mean, 
So how how do you what's your high school life like? I mean, what you know how do how do you define yourself in that world? Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was an it was well, an interesting black time. Black trench coat. Like the, <laughs> no, uh, not quite. I went again. Like I broke in the other direction from that. Of like, by fifteen, I was getting pretty politically active. You were. Um, yeah. How did that um, start? On the on the left. So I had an English teacher who was um, just one of these teachers that people tell you about who sure. just. The Republicans are trying to fire all them. Here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, she was. Her name was Marlena Morgan. She died this past fall, and I, w- I spoke at her funeral. And she was. Um, she was my debate coach, and she was uh, my English teacher. And she, you know, she yeah. had this program where right. uh, she introduced us to Chomsky and Orwell and all this. Um, and. Uh, you know, she let me write these funny stories. Yeah. And, you know, she really nurtured the That you the could do it in front of the class? Of, I don't remember reading them out in front of the class. Right. There was one point where I performed the um, one of the soliloquies from Hamlet. That was a kind of turning point. Was she an me. English teacher, would you she say? She was an English teacher, yeah. But it ended up being kind of like almost civics, yeah. English, like- How it all fits together. <clears throat> yeah. And so I started getting, uh, started getting involved politically and then- when I was about 16 years old, actually, like, joined up with a little, um, like, Trotskyist socialist organ, like, yeah. like, like, fairly kind of going all the way, somewhat cultish situation. Yeah, where I was like, uh, were you yeah. the youngest uh, among them? I had a few friends from high school who joined with me, and we were like, so basically, what it was is like there was like there was an adult party, um, and then we were like in the youth auxiliary. And the youth auxiliary was like a pretty cool place. Now, what what are the tenets of a Trotsky cult? So, so Trotskyism is it's just basically like uh, it's like communism, but without uh, without apologizing for the the tyranny of like the Soviet Union, basically. Right. right. So it was like we were for you know the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism but we also didn't think that um the ussr was good right right but you, so basically it's sort of like you know that happened it was bad it, you know got away from us but we're pure we're going to do it right this time yeah when we do it it's going to be good <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> and uh and you know it was uh, there was uh, this you know communist newspaper that was published in new york and you know, we sold it on weekends, and I occasionally got to write for it. And as like workers, a t- part, what was it, it was called? It was uh, so in the states, the party's called the Socialist Workers Party. Right, I remember that. Paper. The newspaper's called the Militant. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I would uh, aggravated I, old hippies used to sell it on <laughs> street yeah, corners yeah. in New York. Well, so and the reason they were aggravated was because they started as hippies, but in the early 1970s, the party did something called the Turn to Industry. Yeah, which was basically we've got all these like college kids who've joined the party because of to fight the vietnam war but socialism can only be built by the working class yeah so they made all these kids <laughs> go get factory jobs right and so you had all of these like teachers and whatever like go get jobs in like aerospace uh-huh. um and so uh, when i finished high school I wasn't going to go to university. I went and got a job in a factory where I could sell the newspaper. I could work with my like fellow um, workers, Doing my what? comrades, fomenting revolution. But I mean, like, it was not was totally job? clear. Uh, well, like I worked in a, um, I worked in a plant that made uh, lighting fixtures. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure we made. Uh, if you ever in the SeaTac Airport. Yeah. 
you're probably walking under something that I loaded onto a truck. Uh, <laughs> so you can so thank for the people. I'll give you the for the for people. the people exactly. <laughs> um, so they didn't have any political arm that had any traction. So it was sort of an idealistic thing that if you just hand out these newspapers and get everybody working those type of jobs, that maybe a leader would pop up that would uh, do some form of unionizing that would uh, essentially provoke I mean, the next wave. Th- there's I I really don't think it was very well thought through i mean it was it was it was which it was, makes it more of a cult than a movement exactly and it was shabby enough that even as an 18 year old you i kind of went like oh, okay well i think this uh but you took the gig i would say that as like a 16 year old a 17 year old those those weekends those like yeah you know it, like they were they were probably pretty good for my intellectual development i you know what'd you do on the weekends you what, like we'd were, we'd, we'd, go, we'd go like friday nights there would be like um uh, the, the, what was called the Militant Labor Forum. So yeah. there would be like someone would give a presentation on like sure. what was going on in Yugoslavia or Palestine or whatever. Um, you know, there'd be study sessions on the Sundays. So it's interesting. So you're dealing, you're engaging with world politics from a very specific point of view. Very so, specific. But yet, you know, I imagine that the 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 presentation was relatively true. You know, that, you know, the solutions may have been uh, a little uh, uh, extreme or, or, or not quite practical, but the, the conflicts that were being discussed were probably real. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like I got a pretty good understanding of, for instance, what was going on in the Middle East. Yeah. Or I got a pretty good understanding of, like, you know, I remember we were, we were doing um, uh, anti-war organizing around the, the bombing of Serbia in, yeah. in 1998. Right. And uh, I feel like the line that we had was, you know, uh, not, you know, against the bombing, but also um, the, the, the Albanians should have some sort of self-determination there. I, I, I mean, I feel like that was a, a relatively, you know, non-lunatic right. position, but it was, I mean, it was not in a healthy, there, there was, there was no kind of connection to real people like what people were actually going through i mean one of the things really the guys at the light factory they (laughs) well so so this is the thing like when you're at the light factory for the first three months of your employment you're on probation yeah so during those times nobody knows that you're there with the other communists yeah so you hear from the actual workers in the factory what they really think of these guys who sell the newspaper right. outside of the factory, yeah. which is that they think they're fucking nuts. Right? Yeah. So, and then as an 18 year old, it's hard to like, you go, well, yeah. I mean, I get that. I yeah. get that you like, where the, where, the, where the best case scenario is kind of a condescending, like yeah. that person, you know, they, they've got a good, they've got good intentions. Right. That's the best case scenario. Right. right. And the worst case scenario is like, oh, Jesus, those fucking nuts again. But, so that's funny. So the, the actual, the, the people that you're there to commiserate with and inspire are just sort of like, we just want to do our job. Yeah. yeah. I, don't yeah. Fucking, I don't know what that guy wants. He's a nutbag with the paper. What well, we the other to- thing is they're all looking at you an 18 year old kid and they've got 18 year old kids at home that they won't let do this kind of work because they want like, better life yeah them. yeah so they're like why are you not like you're 18 years old go to school like go like go to like um <laughs> and what what is the socialist component in the government of of canada you know in terms of these workplaces i mean isn't everybody what 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 are the benefits of that i mean what you're you're almost you're working against 
a culture that is more socialized than most. Uh, that's, I mean, in a way, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was. I, again, I think it was a good stuff. It introduced me, for instance, uh, to a much more sort of sympathetic understanding of the fight for like indigenous sovereignty in mm-hmm. Canada. And so, I think for a lot of people, I, I was about, I would say, I was about fifteen years ahead of most sort of mainstream non-indigenous Canadians uh, in terms of um, wrapping my head around, you know, sovereignty issues. Sure. Like there, there were, there were elements of it that were, I, I you know, I don't want to just write the whole thing off, but it was, it was definitely goofy and it was definitely <laughs> yeah. cultish. Right. Um, but also it was a good experience. I think it was a good, all in all, yeah. like having gotten out of it, it was a good experience. So what, did you end up going to school? I, I went to school. Yeah. You quit I, the light factory? I quit the light factory. I got a job at a, um, at a video arcade at the mall. There you go. Which I there you uh, go. <laughs> which I unionized. You did? Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't <laughs> quite. I couldn't quite leave the so communism behind. Yeah. So um, we never got a first contract, but we did unionize, and that. But I was doing that, and I was getting a degree. Got in, a little um, organizer experience in history. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, and I guess, kind of led me back into comedy was I was writing on the school paper in um, college. At, at, yeah. So when did you? first try stand-up uh the summer after i finished uh school so i was 24 the first time but I you'd been writing i've been satirical writing satirical and funny pieces yeah yeah so are some of those early essays in that one book of essays no no the uh no the my, early writings of charlie deemers no that. those have not been unearthed yet uh, i uh hopefully they don't get it i mean I, I i don't know how many of those i'd be uh proud of to see today i mean i'd be proud of the kid who wrote them i guess yeah. right like you're 20 i'm saying your name right deemers right uh demers yeah it's a it's a um i just want, i just realized yeah no 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 problem demers um, is a more french kind of so it's a um so in french we would say demers demers which is only in Quebecois French. Yeah. The, the French from France. So in America, like, we say Deemers. Deemers, yeah. And, and, and you say it, Demers. Demers, yeah. <laughs> but like that's the, um, uh, the, you know, that's another incredible thing watching from Canada, uh, the way uh, Americans pronounce French words. Yeah. I mean, Brett Favre is like just a total mind fuck yeah. for, a sm- for a French Canadian child to yeah. be like, what do you mean, Favre? <laughs> what is it? Favre. <laughs> but like it's like the R doesn't even come before the V. It's like you've you've actually your pronunciation is reordering the letters yeah. and is um but then like yeah, Lake Punch a Train. Like yeah. it's uh yeah. there is something charming about Say that the right. American Pontchartrain. <laughs> yeah, it's better. But I do love Punch a Train, yeah. it does feel uh, it feels right. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I you know, we, we that's that's our magic down here. We'll just level everything it, to it. It was an amazing thing for me like when I was ta- in school and taking an African American history class and uh, learning about W.E.B. Du Bois yeah. and like the hardest thing to wrap my head around was that it wasn't Du Bois. <laughs> <laughs> like, his name was Du Bois. He pronounced it Du Bois. It's Du Bois. Yeah. And uh, that took like months. Yeah. Oh, really? Du Bois. Yeah. No. <laughs> could, of the woods. Yeah. 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 When so you're writing for the paper in college? I'm writing for the newspaper. I was so you're the, finding a voice, you know? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And uh, and finding a way to be political in a way that uh, had more to, that where you had to 
that was outward facing. So well, yeah, right. It didn't seem it didn't seem like you know you were. It seemed like early on you got a scope of the world, and it wasn't kind of just some exercise that a college kid does. It, you know, you were you you knew how and and what to get involved in. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, you know when you when you're writing, and then you know ultimately with comedy, you, you're having to put your thoughts in ways that like they're just they can't be. Um, solipsistic they have to resonate with other people right. in some way or another otherwise you know you'll you'll fail and so or have a very small audience of you or have a, yeah the other guy you're laughing with <laughs> precisely <laughs> yeah and then he'll figure out a way to split from yeah. You. <laughs> yeah yeah um uh but yeah i was writing for the school paper and then um yeah, and then and then after school, you know, started a, a website with some friends who had been on the paper. We'd all graduated, and um, that was right before I started doing stand-up. And I was writing a lot more of these kind of funny pieces, funny yeah. essays, and really being reminded of, like, how important it was for me growing up to be funny yeah. – to be a funny guy, to be – to, to like uh, – and, uh, and so I tried um, – yeah, because you get you know you you know you, I, I imagine it was a relief from the intrusive thoughts. I, I mean, I it was it was. Did you resist when people like like were people always telling you you got to try stand up and and it, were you like no nah, no nah, I'm funny with my friends? No, because I I, when I was like I'm 54, so right. it was not you, you know it was not as inaccessible. Like you, there wasn't like a mic at the coffee place. Yeah, you know when I was <laughs> right. When I was coming yeah. up, you know, like yeah. if you like if you want to do stand up, people are like, How do you even start? What do you do? Yeah. Like it was what not part of the country do you have to live in? Right. Yeah. It was not even a, a conversation. You know, it was just an obsession I had and you know, and I had no idea how to start it. I mean, I think right. your generation was sort of like you could there were open mics around and shit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so I went down to one and um you know, Cliff Nesteroff, who's been on uh-huh. the podcast, was up ahead of me and a very intense maniacal cliff nesteroff yeah and he was doing a bit about um you know this uh the words he used were the squeegee anarchist yeah. who had just introduced noam chomsky at a big anti-war rally in vancouver <laughs> he's making fun of this guy and what an idiot he was yeah. and it, and that was me who had introduced chomsky <laughs> so this is my first night ever doing stand-up and there's this guy on stage telling a joke about me uh, and he's such a snot. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't imagine that the tone had anything remotely embracing about it. <laughs> no, so yeah. So he goes, uh, "Buddy, you're uh, you're introducing Noam Chomsky, not White Snake." That was the punchline. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, when I, so, so then I went up on stage yeah. and I opened. I, I said, uh, that, "That was me. I introduced Noam Chomsky. I didn't realize that I'd done anything um, inappropriate, yeah. but." Uh, now I'm starting to get an idea of why my family was so mad at me after my grandfather's eulogy, and uh, <laughs> got a laugh. Yeah, we got a laugh, and it yeah. was, uh, and it was. You're on your way. It was just such a fun time in the Vancouver scene. I yeah. mean, that was the point when um, Zach Galifianakis was living in Vancouver because he was filming this oh, show, yeah. this now yeah. forgotten show, True Calling, and so he would do stand up every week at that spot that uh-huh. place that i went down what was to. it called uh it was called the el cocal uh-huh. doesn't it's now part of an organic grocery store uh-huh the el cocal was a salvadoran restaurant and i've like i've said this before it's it's like it was a restaurant that it was it was like somebody had set up a simulation in which to train future food inspectors yeah because <laughs> it's just like it had like inception like levels yeah. to like yeah so there'd be like buckets on the floor <laughs> 
capturing rainwater. And you'd be like, I don't think it's sanitary for the restaurant cat yeah. to be drinking from that bucket. Uh, but that was the it was the cat. It was the heart yeah. of the like what was then kind of self-identifying as the alt comedy scene in Vancouver. And so the second time I ever did stand up, Zach Galifianakis is in the audience and like comes up to me, is chatting afterwards about the set. You know, Zach is like, I mean, he's such a good guy. Yeah. He's like. Um, it, it was a time when you felt like you were doing something like so exciting. Like, well, that's interesting uh, that just by virtue of Zach being stranded in Vancouver, totally, yeah. he helped define the uh, alternative comedy scene of the place. Absolutely. The other person a residency. Was spending a fair amount of time in Vancouver at the time was Robin Williams. Yeah. And so he would come through and he did the other sort of independent night that was uh -huh, happening in town, uh -huh. which was run by Brent Butt at the Urban Well. Uh, actually, by that time, he was no longer running it. Um, but... Uh, Robin Williams would come and do a set and then for the next three months every room in town was just on fire with crowds yeah because there was a chance Robin Williams was gonna right drop in. right yeah and he was another one who was just like he generous. was generous very generous yeah very sweet guy and uh yeah yeah generous to a fault I think uh, we did a show, um, you know, I, I was doing, I was part of a comedy duo. I was working with a guy named Paul Bay, who's a terrific, he does, um, he actually does these uh, sort of scripted podcasts, The Big Loop and the Black Tapes podcast, just brilliant guy. And we were comedy partners and he, um, somebody asked, uh, you know, Robin was at the back of the room. Yeah. We were up on stage. He said, you should watch these guys. And, and you hear that, like Robin would laugh when no one else was like, ooh. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> we came off stage yeah. and he goes up and says, oh, you know, that's the, that's the future of comedy. You know, a white guy and an Asian guy working together. And um, afterwards, we said to him, like, listen, don't be angry if you see, you know, that quote uh, out of context, you know, future of comedy, yeah. Rob Williams uh, on promotional materials. And he goes, he goes, future of comedy, future of comedy, just like lets us know that it's. And yeah. I mean, I literally sometimes, sometimes people will still throw that in an intro oh, yeah. for me as I'm, yeah, yeah. I like doing a corporate coming up on stage calls him yeah. the future of comedy yeah. when he's with the other guy yeah <laughs> yeah let's see how he does on his own <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a great story though so so then so you got your history degree and you you started doing comedy after college but you you kept uh, involved with politics yeah so it's still a very big part of my life i mean i um my wife and I met at a at a um, political conference. But you don't um, identify as a communist anymore. I identify as a socialist. Yeah. I don't identify as a communist. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would identify as a, as a Marxist in my yeah. general approach to uh, history or economics. Um, uh, where it doesn't make sense, I just don't abide it. But yeah. uh, I would I would describe myself as a socialist, and which they, you can do in polite company now again in North America. And and so, did you work in government? No, never did. No, I've done some work for, I've written like, uh, the closest I've come to it is, uh, I've written jokes for socialist politicians oh, in yeah. Canada who yeah. were like, so there was a guy named, uh, Adrian Dix, who is now the minister of health in British Columbia. Uh, -huh. uh but he was running to be the premier, which yeah. is essentially just like uh, governor. Yeah. And I was his joke writer. Yeah. Um, how'd you do? I, I mean, so the first jokes I wrote for him, 
uh, the fir- like the first speech that I, I wrote jokes for, uh, the three of the jokes made it into the um, the column of the biggest political pundit in yeah. BC. So they they were pretty happy with the work. I mean, he lost the election. Uh, Don't but, blame yourself. No, I try not to. So he, he <laughs> was running against that one goddamn this, joke, Charlie. He was running against this um, right wing uh, politician who had. Um, she said she was going to introduce something called Free Enterprise Fridays. Yeah. And so we, I had Adrian say that he was going to preempt that with uh, theoretical Marxism Thursdays, <laughs> and he delivered that joke at the Vancouver Board of Trade, and it yeah. made it into the papers. Good, got a good laugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, because I noticed that like when we worked together the first time, that you know you're definitely politically informed, and you know you're connected to uh, to the uh, Canadian people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't remember when we first met though. Like I, I, like, I know you did a lot of the debaters, but I feel like, it, do you remember where we first met? I'm trying, to, I'm trying remember to remember where it was. I think it was, you You came up and did the Vancouver Festival. Oh, yeah, early on. And yeah. my sketch partner, Paul, was uh, a huge, huge fan of yours. Yeah. Uh, partly because of the Air America stuff, and then partly because he was, um, he actually said this to me last night, because he's in LA right now, yeah. and so we were talking last night, and he said, you know, I wonder if you'd remember the, like, depressed uh, Korean Canadian comedian who asked him how to make divorce funny because he was going through a divorce himself and in, in Canada in Canada so yeah, this yeah, was in yeah. Vancouver right and so I feel like that's where we first met but the, the 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 real sort of memory that I have and I hope this isn't too schlocky is I in 2009 I did just for laughs for the first yeah, time yeah and I the homegrown competition is the Canadian version of the um, uh, new faces yeah. And I had lost the competition. It was in, and it was in Toronto that year. And then we went to Montreal. Yeah. And my wife was with me, but she was flying back. And so she was in Montreal and we're like walking through the streets of downtown Montreal. And I'm talking to her and I'm saying, I don't know what I'm doing. This is like, I, I, I you know, you feel so tiny at that sure. festival. Oh yeah, it's the worst. And uh, I, I, I feel tiny when I go now. I don't yeah, even go anymore. No, I, I just <laughs> like, and it was just such a depressing thing. Yeah. And I'm walking down the street with her like an hour or two before she's leaving for the airport. And you were getting interviewed uh, on the side of the road. And, and I'm literally, I'm in the middle of telling her how, uh, you know, I might as well not exist at this festival. And you go, Hey, it's Charlie, right? How's it going, man? And I like, it was this epiphany because one, I mean, American comics with a few notable exceptions. Yeah. So Zach's definitely one. Yeah. Rory Scoville is another one. Yeah. Andy Kindler. Uh, American comics tend to very quickly forget Right, Amer- uh, Canadian comics yeah, yeah. who they've worked with or with whom they were once peers. Yeah, yeah. Their careers move a lot faster than ours because there's a lot more industry, yeah. there's a lot more. And I think some people make the mistake of thinking that means that all the talent is here as well. Yeah. Uh, and so there is, you know, Margaret Atwood once described the US-American border as like a one-way mirror. Uh-huh. And so there is that feeling of like, yeah. oh, that nobody's ever going to remember sure, me. Sure. Nobody's, And so... It meant so much to me to have you like say hello, like just a human yeah. kind of, uh, yeah. um, and so I, I always kind of think of that as uh, like, I mean, although by definition it can't be the first place we met because you were recognizing me. No, because I think we did a show at Yucks. It's maybe possible. Right down, yeah. like for the- Downtown. Fe- yeah, yeah. Right? 
Because I said, uh, you know, and this was right after, you know, the podcast and everything had really landed. And I said, you know, this guy, um, uh, we all thought he was great, but, you know, he was, and the way it came out was like, he wasn't really going anywhere. We all knew he was funny. And now here he is. Um, he's succeeded. Uh, but it's like, uh, could you have been hosting? I was. I was emceeing. Yeah. I was hosting. And yeah. I, um, but it was like that, uh, you know, the line about you in the, um, the David Rakoff essay from Aspen. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, in, in the old days, a guy like Mark Maron could have made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was yeah. like, I was like the happy yeah, version yeah, of that. Yeah. Like, we all thought, here's well, I, I know, who... I know why I knew you, because your jokes are good, and, you know, it, it struck me. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's why I kind. remembered your name. So let's, co- let's just talk about, like, you know, uh, all the books. I have um, Vancouver Special. Oh, right on. You know, what you sent, and that's like sort of a, a, a unique sort of uh, overview of the city. Yeah, so what it was was in the kind of lead up to the um, 2010 Olympics, yeah. uh, Arsenal Pulp, which is kind of a, you know, punk rock kind of publisher. They're an independent uh, um, publisher, put out a lot of cool stuff, and it's definitely not the kind of yeah. um, uh, airport coffee table sure, books. Sure. But they wanted to put out kind of a beautiful design object that had the um, and actually, the first time I was at um, Just for Laughs, I was also coming up against the deadline for the book, which was another reason why I was so like down. Uh-huh. Vancouver Special and my first uh, novel, The Prescription Errors, those both came out in 2009 within yeah. about six weeks of each other just by kind of accident. And what was, the, what, what was the angle of Vancouver Special? Uh, Vancouver Special was like uh, essays about the city divided up by sections of like neighborhoods, people and culture great and uh yeah i mean i i come from um vancouver is one of those places uh it's one of those cities that everybody's from someplace else sure they're either from someplace else in the country or they're from someplace else in the world um and uh i'm i'm a fourth generation vancouverite both of my uh like i would walk through when i would pick up my daughter from her first daycare we would walk home through the school grounds of her great grandfather's elementary school, like uh-huh. which is it's a very rare experience in Vancouver. So wait, so, your family goes all the way back. Yeah, but your father came from Montreal. My, my, yeah, so so like my dad came from Montreal in the in the mid seventies, but on my mom's side, oh, yeah. we've been in Vancouver for almost a hundred years. Wow. Um, and so it's it's this city that just completely is kind of percolated through me so and you're fascinated with the history of it definitely yeah, yeah. and then the uh so you, the prescription errors that you know that's your first novel the prescription errors was a novel about uh comedy and mental illness and um it's essentially uh it tells kind of the stories of it's so it's primarily the story of a guy with obsessive compulsive disorder who mm. is um, working through, uh, you know, the the trauma of having lost his. Mo- I mean, it's. <laughs> this sounds like a very unique story. Yeah, Where did yeah. this come from, Charlie? I can't, after talking well, he has to you for an hour, powers. Yeah. Uh, he's very thin, though. Oh, yeah. the, no, um, <laughs> it's, it's about a guy with six pack abs and no mom. Uh, so he he uh, he's essentially he's trying to rid himself of the um, trauma 
of having lost his mother by um, immersing himself in this long study of medical technology. Yeah. And that's told alongside the story of a guy who is a sound alike who replaces a beloved um, cartoon actor who um, is uh, in a car wreck. Oh. And uh, so it's basically th- their two stories kind of intermingled. Yeah. And, okay, so the new one, you did a book of essays as well. Yeah, I did a book of essays called The Horrors, which is um, a book of uh, humor essays, basically about, um, uh, I try to write something funny about a horrible subject for every letter of the alphabet. Okay. Yeah. It's almost like your take on Shel Silverstein's ABC. Something like that, yeah. Or like the um, Edward Crumb, uh, no, uh, or Edward Gorey. Yeah, 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 definitely. So uh, the sort of uh, childlike construction, but with a... uh, uh, and I was sort of writing that the darkness one. of an adult. Exactly. Yes. Backloaded now, into the child point of view. Yeah. And I was writing that one at more or less the same time as I was writing the the dad dialogues, which is a book that I co-wrote with my friend George Bowering, who was the first poet laureate of Canada. He's in his eighties. He's kind of a major uh, literary figure in Canada. And uh-huh. over the course of um, the first year of my daughter's life, he and I would write letters to each other every two weeks or so about fatherhood and he was working from his journals of uh, when his daughter Thea was born in 1971 Uh and um, what ends up happening over the course of the book as well is that during that year it looked like my father was going to die of lymphoma Uh, he's okay now Uh Um, uh, but uh, it was very touch and go and so it kind of becomes about George's life as a father, my beginning life as a father, and your dad's illness. The possibility of, of losing my own. Wow. Life. What was it called? The Dad Dialogues. Oh, and that's yeah. available too. That right? is, yeah. So the new book, Property Values, is a is it seems like the uh, a kind of a, is a culmination of all your your points of view and angles, like a fictional, like how are you going to fight the good fight in an engaging, you know, sellable way. Definitely. Uh, right? That's, I mean, that's 100% the uh, the thinking behind it. I yeah. mean, a big part of it was I, I looked at my, uh, Paul, who I mentioned earlier, I looked at his podcast and um, it was just one of these things where you're watching a friend have enormous success doing it's something that the leaves- worst, right? <laughs> They're fucking horrible. <laughs> What's the Gore Vidal thing of like, yeah. it's not enough for uh, for me to succeed. I need my friends to fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I looked at like what Paul was doing. Yeah. And he was just having this tremendous success with a project that just used every muscle he'd ever been working the entire time I knew him. That's and right. I just like, this is the using every single right. bit of like... And it inspired me to ask, like, like if I were to do yeah. something equivalently, if somebody were to say, like, that used every bit that he has been developing, yeah. um, what would it look like? And I, I knew it would be, like, I knew it would be a crime story because of this sort of lifelong fascination I've had with organized crime. And, yeah. Uh, I knew it would, hopefully, it would be funny. I knew it would be political. And so property values is a it's a it's a crime story that's set in the world of sort of Vancouver's crazy housing market which is not unlike uh California. No, it's yeah. very much a California story. Escalated and Absolutely. Uh so Vancouver and San Francisco are almost identical right, in that respect. Oh, yeah, right. Um, Everybody's getting priced out who is actually lives in the city. Totally. Right. Yeah. And the, and you can't run a functional city anymore because uh no one who does working class labor can afford can to afford live to live there. yeah 
Um, and so uh, property values is about a group of friends who uh, one of them can't afford to stay in the house where he grew up. Right. And uh, so uh, they stage a drive-by shooting in order to um, lower the asking price. Yeah. And uh, that decision draws- But no one gets killed in that first one. Nobody gets killed in the first- right. uh, No, the guy's inside, his yeah. friends shoot up the house, and they they stage this whole kind of pantomime. Right. yeah. Uh, but then uh, it draws the attention of- um, The real gang. The real gangsters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they get sort of drawn into this escalating um, sort of comedy of errors. And I just feel really happy. Like, like you say, it's it's- you spend your whole kind of life trying to put these somewhat esoteric ideas yeah. into a into a shape that everyone uh, can have process. fun with yeah, and yeah. process, yeah. and like that it's actually something that uh, um, that hopefully can resonate. And and it's it's out in Canada now. It's out in Canada, and uh, the you know the reason I'm 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 down in California is it's been. Uh, it's been optioned, and I've been hired to write the screenplay with my buddy uh, Ryan Knighton. Yeah, it's a and, and so it's it's good it's story. A, it's a dream. That's it's, great. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, I hope that that process yields something other than frustration. I'm tr- hoping you know the kind of dramatic weight loss that'll get me a TMZ. <laughs> good. There's also something I wanted to show you before we wrap up here is that my my business partner and producer sent me a picture of of his son Owen with the, <gasps> with the character. Oh. <laughs> With the, that's a with that little toy animal that you're the voice of, some sort yeah. of snail, right? So this is Walter. He Walter says, uh, Walrus. He, my Brendan says I was looking at his credits and saw that he's the voice of that slug thing, which is one of my son's favorites. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, I uh, I am the uh, voice of Walter the slug on the uh, Netflix series Beat Bugs. Yeah, well, Owen's a big fan. Oh well, and I uh, that so I that that toy is amazing because you can't get them in the in. Canada, yeah, because the deal for the toys is with Target, oh. and we don't have Target in Canada. <laughs> so I was in Duluth last summer uh, visiting, like, with my wife's family, yeah. And I go into the Duluth uh, Target yeah. and buy like a whole shopping cart <laughs> full of these giant blue slugs. Yeah. So I felt like I owed an explanation to yeah. the um, to the woman at the cash register. I was like, so this is um, I'm this guy's voice on the yeah. cartoon. And, you know, I didn't, I should have stopped to think about it, but like that instantly made me the biggest celebrity to ever come through the oh, Duluth I Target. I thought you were going to say, that obviously made me, to her, a lunatic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a crazy person who's <laughs> claiming to That's also talk possible. for a toy. Maybe she was just like, that's very sweet. <laughs> it was this incredible moment where I'm yeah. going through the store yeah. with my daughter and she's in the shopping cart and uh, we're looking for the toys. We know that they're there. Um, but we don't know exactly where, and then we find this wall of them. Yeah, and it was like it was like in a movie where like we looked at the we looked at the shelves, yeah. we looked at each other, we looked back at the shelves, and then we both just cracked up because oh. she understood even at like what three and a half I yeah. guess at the time that this was like completely surreal. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, good moment. Yeah. I hope she remembers it. Reminder. I I, <laughs> I do every day. <laughs> great talking to you, Charlie. Ah, uh, so much fun. Thanks so much for having me. See that? What a nice, decent, intelligent conversation. Obviously between two like-minded people, but nonetheless the freedom of thought that is available politically in Canada is, we have it here, 
but it uh, is not a cultural norm, that's for sure. Uh, so Charlie's book, as I said earlier, Property Values, comes out on October 16th. You can pre-order it now. A lot of, again, a lot of uh, attention for my new, uh, for my new uh, Echo Pedal, a gift from the uh, brilliant Tall Wilkenfeld. It's an Echoplex delay. I believe Echoplex was an old-timey uh, box that MXR has recreated uh, in their smaller format, but uh, but I have been getting a lot of um, people asking, a lot of guitar players asking, and that's what this sound is, and I'll do a little bit of it in my limited uh, scope of guitar playing. I do seem to be quite into this pedal, and I'm plowing it through directly into the old... Uh, 58 Deluxe, so, you know, all that dirt you're hearing around the edges, that ain't the Echoplex, that's uh, old dirty tubes. Yeah. Yeah.